He is more than a story. He is more than a comic book superhero. He is more than a symbol of hope. He represents our greatest aspirations. He is everything we think we can be. And yet, even with all the strength and all the power in all of the world, he may not be able to meet his greatest challenges and redeem his family's legacy. For he is the son of El. Chapter 23, Creature of the Night. After leaving the League of Shadows, Bruce kept reminding himself he needed to act in ways that Ra's al Ghul would not expect. Unpredictability would be his advantage. Emerging from the jungle into a small village, Bruce soon found a bus to the nearest city where he could contact his family's estate. Wayne Manor was managed by a single soul still in employment, the family's former butler, Alfred Pennyworth. Alfred helped raise Bruce as a small child and had been made his custodian after Jonathan and Martha Wayne were murdered. Alfred would have the resources to extract Bruce from a foreign country without a passport. Though extraction from a foreign country was only the start, Bruce needed to create a new life and persona for himself. Within 24 hours, Bruce boarded his private jet. Alfred met him at the ramp of the plane. He kept his usual formal demeanor, holding out an outstretched arm to take Bruce's things. It is a relief to see you, Master Bruce. Bruce met his gaze. His voice did not inflect it, but Alfred's eyes revealed how deeply felt his sentiment was. Bruce did his best to reciprocate the affection. Thank you, Alfred. I'll carry my own things. The flight home to Gotham was spent in near silence. Halfway through the flight, Alfred put the jet on autopilot and came out of the cockpit to sit with Bruce. We will have a lot of explaining to do when you return. Perhaps it is best we start getting our story straight. Bruce shifted his eyes to look at Alfred without moving in the slightest. A smile crept over the young master's face. It was good to know that Alfred was with him in this, whatever it was he was doing. Resurfacing into the public eye, Bruce would be under endless scrutiny from the press. A paper trail was created to account for the past eight years of Bruce's whereabouts. Meanwhile, Alfred enrolled him at Gotham University. Poor test scores were fabricated and bribes were made to ensure his entry to the school. Bruce was carefully curating his public persona as a slacking billionaire orphan with obvious issues. By attending Gotham University, Bruce could go to college while living at Wayne Manor on the outskirts of the city. Engineering the cave below the house into a machine shop with a metal forge, he made a covert base of operations for him to build his custom gadgets and vehicles. When he was not poorly attending classes, intentionally failing his grades, or making a show of his sophomoric charades, Bruce was investigating the world of Gotham. The League of Shadows had an overwhelming hold on the city, especially one particular figure Bruce remembered, Oswald Cobblepot. After developing a waddle-like limp in his walk, Oswald Cobblepot's distinct fashion choice of a five-piece suit and black top hat had earned him the nickname of the Penguin. Along with the Penguin, the League of Shadows controlled an interconnected web of crime families in Gotham. Bruce knew all of this before returning to the city. While in college, he built a network of surveillance to track their every movement. Though Bruce only watched, he was vigilant. He could not let the League of Shadows or Lightkeepers be aware of his actions. Maintaining his public persona was his highest priority. Bruce Wayne's reputation was notorious on campus. 
He was said to be more focused on ladies than grades. He and his well-reputed best friend, Harvey Dent, were known for their prowess at parties and for their over-energetic zealousness when drunk. Harvey was a law student with a dark sense of humor and a kind of determination that Bruce saw in himself. There were moments that Bruce hoped that he and Harvey might find a way, one day, to put an end to crime in Gotham. Harvey, using the law, and Bruce, with less conventional methods. He never told Harvey of this plan, as he was still unsure what his unconventional methods might be. Bruce swore to himself that he wouldn't be like Ra's al Ghul. He wasn't going to kill anyone, though he was going to use fear as his weapon. He knew the power that a mask and a reputation could possess. In his last year of college, Bruce's plan was put into motion by the announcement of a breakthrough technology from a professor at Ivy University in the North. A science professor by the name of Ray Palmer had developed a unique fabric. It was akin to spandex, but had an uncanny ability to redistribute the kinetic energy of high-impact blows. In the dark of night, Bruce infiltrated Palmer's lab in an attempt to steal a suit of his own. Once inside, he found a suit laying out in the open. While inspecting it, he was taken by surprise when Ray Palmer emerged from his microscopic form as calm as ever. He was wearing his own blue and red suit. Hey, didn't mean to startle you there. Bruce wasn't sure if he should fight or flee, but Ray showed no distress upon finding him in his lab that night, dressed in all black with a bandit's mask over his eyes. Sorry the lights were off when you came in. I'm working on this new fabric. It's meant to be worn at night, so I like to work on it in the dark. Probably just your style. Bruce decided to venture that Palmer might be receptive. I can't argue with that. Is it finished? Whoa there, slow down. You don't want to rush perfection. What's wrong with it? Oh, it's not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just not quite there yet, you know? How soon will it be ready? What, do you need it for some graduation prank? Bruce froze with apprehension, but Ray Palmer took it all in stride as he kept talking. Or are you on the football team? Are you hoping to wear it under your uniform at the game this week? I bet it would be pretty cool, but I doubt you'd get away with it. It changes the way you move when you're hit. Take some time getting used to. Ray Palmer took a seat at his desk. It's okay, kid. You don't have to freak out. You're not the first student to come in here hoping to try one out. I'm open to proposals. Bruce took a moment to choose his words carefully. Palmer's attitude was completely unexpected. Bruce saw an opportunity in front of him. I want to use it to take on organized crime. I want a suit so frightening that my reputation alone will strike fear into criminals. Palmer heard this and slowly sat up in his chair. Okay, wow. So, so while I'm not saying no, that is a big ask. What's your major, son? Bruce took a chance and kept sharing more of his plan with this unusual professor. I'm not a student here. I come from Gotham. Our city's become so corrupt that no police or politician can be expected to protect us. Ray Palmer cocked his head back and pursed his lips. I'm not gonna lie. You sound a bit kooky, but I like your gumption, so I'm willing to work with you. I think we can even get the suit right here to work for you, if you're really into it. Wait, really? This seems too easy. Well, yeah, it probably is. But if you cause any trouble and I don't like what I see, I can easily track you down and take your suit apart at a molecular level. But don't even worry about that. I just have one question for you, and it's a really important question. What's that? How do you want to theme this suit? Because we can do some really cool stuff with the design. Ray Palmer worked for months with Bruce to develop a suit. Along the way, 
He was pleasantly surprised by the young man's ingenious inventions. Ray never learned the identity of the would-be crime fighter, but he gained a great esteem for his ability. Bruce's custom interface built into contact lenses was an innovation Ray hadn't considered. Even more impressive, after only a month of working with Ray's unique nanite fabric, Bruce was developing a Neuralink that could manipulate the cape to take rigid forms. It could become an encircled barrier, a glider, or several elaborate formations all for dramatic purposes. Palmer wasn't happy about it, but he agreed not to replicate the cape functions Bruce developed. They both agreed that it was important this costume be wholly unique if it were to command the reputation they were aiming for. With a special fabric of Palmer's, Bruce would blend in with the shadows and be one with the night. Ras al Ghul had misidentified him when they met. Bruce was not a bird when he flew into that balcony window. He was a creature of the night. Part man, part bat, seen through the shadows as though they were not there. From the darkness, Bruce planned to emerge as a monster. Ray still had his doubts about the design. I don't know if these pointy devil horns really look like bat ears. They don't have to. It's the best shape for the spatial sensory system, and the horns are frightening either way. I don't care what they call me, just as long as they fear me. When the suit was complete, Ray had to admit, this man-bat creature they had created was terrifying. He had his doubts as to whether the exposed lower jaw would be too human. But when Bruce covered his skin in a gray nanite spray and wore the cowl over his eyes, he became an otherworldly horror of a sight. For the first few years, only the underworld of Gotham knew of the Batman. But he soon became an urban legend. To undermine the League of Shadows and their network of crime, the Batman could not just go after the bosses at the top. He had to target the hoodlums at the bottom as well. They all needed to fear him. Gotham imagined this Batman as a monster, lurking in the shadows and devouring criminals. But Bruce didn't kill anyone. Scaring them was enough. Nonetheless, mysterious deaths were typically attributed to him. Those who had escaped believed they had gotten lucky, or were simply stunned when he vanished unseen back into the shadows. Ray Palmer's suit did its job. He blended in with the darkness. As far as the criminals knew, the Batman could be lurking in any shadow. This new threat was slowly undermining Gotham's criminal underworld, especially its top three organizations, the Falcone family, the Moroni family, and the Penguin, Oswald Cobblepot. Bruce understood how the League of Shadows organized them, used them, and pitted them against one another. As the Batman, he could strike at their every source of income. While he fought his street-level war on crime, this Batman got the attention of the Gotham City Police Department. For the most part, the GCPD were as corrupt as the criminals of Gotham. They spent more time trying to thwart and capture the Batman than the criminals he pursued. Though with time, Bruce identified one particular police captain in the GCPD, Jim Gordon, who seemed to truly care about the city of Gotham as much as he did. When Gordon turned whistleblower on a ring of corrupt officers, Batman started watching over him around the clock. It didn't take long before the word was out. Jim Gordon was under the protection of the monster that hid in the shadows. His alliance would prove more than valuable to Bruce. With time, Gordon was promoted to lieutenant and then commissioner. Under his watch, the Gotham City Police Department would come to rely on the Batman as he slowly picked away at Gotham's underworld. During this time, the League of Shadows had lost faith in Oswald Cobblepot and the others. They began funding new factions in Gotham, each of them just as thematically flamboyant as the next. The Riddler was the first of them, a mysterious crime boss who took delight in wasting away at Batman's time with a series of riddles, puzzles, and mysteries. 
Even the Riddler's own secret identity, Edward Nigma, turned out to be another alias, a play on words, Enigma. While it was the League of Shadows that targeted him, Bruce focused his attention on learning more about the Lightkeepers. Even with his family ties, he dared not approach them directly, preferring they only see his playboy billionaire persona he cultivated. His first target was the notorious Felix Faust. He had heard this name mentioned by his parents long ago, but had no idea how old he was or that he was some kind of sorcerer, as Ra's al Ghul had revealed. In the factory under Wayne Manor, Bruce built a jet of his own, with vertical takeoff and landing ability, like his former master's jet. He dubbed it the Batwing, and for its maiden flight, he flew it to Britain, in search of Felix Faust. While in disguise as a scruffy vagrant, he haunted the streets of London asking about the sorcerer. It was there that he was first approached by a stern Scotsman with deep red hair and a severe expression. The man cornered Bruce in an alleyway. I heard there was a boy looking for Felix Faust. I didn't realize when I found him he would reek of the smell of the demon's head. Bruce kept his calm. He could sense this man was an imminent threat, yet recognized this opportunity for what it was. For the first time, he found someone confessing to know Faust. Bruce assessed the man with a cold, unmoving stare. And who are you? The name is Blood. Jason Blood. But if you seek to find Faust, then I will join you. Just in case you actually find him. Personally, I don't care what you smell like. Can you really smell the scent of Ra's al Ghul? Alas, I cannot. But let's just say, a little demon told me. So began Bruce's friendship with Jason Blood. During that first trip, the two of them found Felix Faust's lair after all, yet the doors and windows of the building were all sealed shut. It was then that Bruce learned Jason's secret. Blood muttered something to himself and transformed in front of Bruce into the hunched, beastly form of a demon. Bruce's eyes widened. This was unlike anything he had ever seen. The demon looked at him with a cruel grin. Blood and I are one and the same, but Etrakin is my true name. With no other introduction, the demon smashed through one of the building's walls and Bruce followed in behind him, cloaked in his cape and cowl. The two of them were met by the uncanny form of a minotaur. It charged them, but Etrakin leapt forward, grappling the beast and flinging it through a nearby wall, deeper into the building. When their tussle finally ended, the minotaur dissolved into sparkling vapor. By then, Faust had escaped during the commotion. The demon Etrakin resumed the form of Jason Blood. This was not Bruce and Jason's last outing in search of Felix Faust. They met periodically in different cities around the world to hunt for the sorcerer. Each time, it seemed Blood would introduce Batman to yet another of his associates. In this manner, Bruce came to meet a cadre of mystical beings, occasionally advising them in their own missions. As a loosely associated team, they pursued Felix Faust. Time and again, they were thwarted in their efforts. All the while, they succeeded in making their presence known to Faust and the rest of the Lightkeepers. Feeling the pressure of this new threat in Gotham City, the Lightkeepers were experimenting with their own means of disrupting the new urban legend known as the Batman. Among their most brilliant minds, Hugo Strange made a hobby out of turning mentally ill patients against themselves, using a maniacal hypnosis process. Gotham began to develop a reputation far worse than a hotbed for crime. The city was becoming synonymous with its mental hospital for the criminally insane. Arkham Asylum operated like a revolving door. Constantly underfunded, the guards of the asylum and judges granting parole 
were easily as corruptible as the rest of Gotham's police and politicians. Batman's gallery of rogues were an ever-present thorn in his side. Meticulously investigating them, Bruce was able to trace each of their origins to either the Lightkeepers or the League of Shadows. Either they were the patients of Hugo Strange, or criminal factions vicariously working for Ra's al Ghul. A few cases stood out as independent from either of these two factions, most of which Bruce considered to be no real threat. Both Matt Hagen, the actor who became Clayface, and a doctor by the name of Victor Freeze were victims of mishaps and industrial scandals. Selina Kyle, a costumed cat burglar, was a clever and beautiful criminal taking advantage of the colorful reputation Gotham had earned. She called herself Catwoman and wore a costume to match. Yet among these flamboyant free agents in crime, one stood out for his lack of affiliation, an unmatched determination for mayhem. He dressed in a purple suit, had a face like a painted clown, called himself the Joker, and seemed to delight in thwarting Batman however possible. Whenever and wherever the Joker emerged, it would always be midway through some other investigation, and never something Bruce expected. The Joker was truly a wild card. Batman could be running down a factory gangplank to foil the Penguin, only to find himself confronted by the clown-themed gangster. Well, well, Batman. Once again, it's just the two of us. Why don't you stop running around with all these two-bit floozy hoodlums and start going steady with me? The few times Batman managed to capture the Joker, Bruce was left wondering if it had been on purpose. In hindsight, it seemed as though his presence had poisoned the walls of the mental hospital, Arkham Asylum. It was hard to say how, but the Joker managed to get into all of their minds, especially his assigned psychologist, Dr. Quinzel. She gave up her life as a reputable doctor and became a career criminal in the process when she helped the Joker escape for the third time. Looking back, Bruce realized it was impossible to say how much the Joker affected the other doctors at Arkham Asylum. Arkham had not always been a hospital for only criminals. Harvey Dent sought help for his personality disorder at Arkham Asylum. Bruce watched as his friends spiraled into a far worse form of madness. It escalated over the years, until he was eventually leading a double life. By day, he was Gotham's district attorney, while simultaneously being the crime boss known as Two-Face at night. Bruce often wondered if Harvey's descent into madness had been somehow spurned by the Joker's influence at Arkham. His suspicions were confirmed when the Joker prompted him to check in on Two-Face. What do you say, Batman? Don't you think it's time we hold a little intervention for our dear old friend Harvey? When Batman finally confronted Harvey, that was when the Joker sprang the punchline of his cruel joke. A chemical blast injured Two-Face and resulted in a scar across the left side of his face, befitting his nickname. Batman could never prove the Joker's direct involvement, but the Joker's taunting was enough to tell him. It told him that the Joker knew Two-Face was Harvey Dent, and that Batman cared about Dent's well-being. It meant the Joker might even know that Batman was Bruce Wayne. If this was true, it seemed that how the Joker chose to capitalize on this information was by tormenting Batman. The Joker's identity was a mystery to Bruce. His fingerprints had been burnt away and his dental records were unknown. He sometimes called himself John's cousin, Jack Doe, before maniacally laughing at his own joke. Through all of his investigating, Batman could only narrow down his true identity to being one of five people that were all supposed to be dead. Bruce had determined that the Joker came from one of the families belonging to the Lightkeepers who had been assassinated after Krypton's destruction. These were the same families Bruce had long ago investigated as a child. The diabolic plot he had suspected Luther of committing, the murder of the most elite Lightkeeper families, 
had been the work of the Joker instead. Before styling himself into this pale white murderous clown, the Joker was the child of one of these families. He faked his own death while murdering the other families along with his own parents. Which of these families the Joker descended from was impossible to say. He had covered his own track so thoroughly that all the families appeared guilty. There was no way to know who he truly was. Conversely, Batman could not confirm if the Joker knew his own identity, but the possibility haunted him. Just as Bruce had made it his aim to be unpredictable to Ra's al Ghul, the Joker had become obsessed with predicting the actions of the Batman. From the bits and pieces of what the Joker had said over the years, Bruce was able to make out some idea of what drove the self-declared clown prince of crime. The Joker believed he had predicted all of time and was now left bored in doing so. That was until after the death of the Waynes inspired him. After that, he faked his own death, hobbled the Lightkeepers by killing five of the most influential families, and began enacting chaos wherever he could. He considered himself the most unpredictable element in all of geopolitics. That was until the emergence of Batman. Batman forever seemed just beyond the Joker's scope of vision. Or at least he was, until the Joker grew obsessed with him. He spoke to Batman as though the world were a video game. The Joker often referred to himself as Player One and Batman as Player Two. He believed they were trapped in a world of predictable, pre-programmed people. He simply referred to everyone else as NPCs or non-playable characters. The Joker insisted that he constantly thwart Batman, as Batman was what he called the only other player in the game. Everyone else was expendable. Batman's efforts to outstep the League of Shadows were repeatedly hamstrung by the Joker's need to outpredict him. Pitted in the middle of all these factions, Bruce tried to cling on to some grain of hope in his purpose. Unfortunately, he simply did not possess enough hope to recognize help when it came. The first of two blessings he did not recognize came from an unusual friendship with an orphan boy in need of a home and guidance. Dick Grayson had grown up in the circus as an acrobat with his parents. Mid-performance, his mother and father were killed in a freak accident. While investigating the murder, Batman needed to speak to the boy to learn specific details about his parents' death. But he did not want to scare the child by appearing from the shadows. Instead, he went to the orphan as Bruce Wayne. So as not to be conspicuous, Bruce spent time building up Dick Grayson's trust before asking him to recall his parents' death. A repressed memory stirred inside of Bruce when Dick described to him the night his mom and dad died. I keep playing it back in my mind. Right before it all happened. I had the worst feeling. I knew something was wrong. I keep thinking if I'd said something, I... I could have saved them. Bruce remembered this feeling. As Dick recounted his sense of grief, Bruce began to feel the grief he had repressed for so long. I'm all too sorry to say I can relate. The young boy looked up to Bruce, eyes wide. What? What happened? I don't know if I'm ready to share that story just yet. But if I tell anyone, I'll be sure it's you. Dick smiled. Okay. It's a deal. Their friendship became a source for Bruce to process his feelings. What started as an investigation grew into an earnest sense of brotherhood. Bruce Wayne adopted Dick Grayson as his ward and offered the boy guidance and role modeling. When he finally told Dick the story of his parents' murder, Bruce felt it wasn't enough. I'm not going to lie to you, Dick. I've come to terms with my parents' death, but I haven't let it go. I've channeled that pain so that others don't have to feel it. If I have the ability to lessen the suffering of others, 
I have to at least try. Not wanting to follow his master's path of lies and secrets, Bruce wasted no time before showing the boy the Batcave underneath Wayne Manor. Bruce shared with him the only life he knew, a life of vengeance. Training the child as he was trained, Bruce became consumed in his diligent life of crime fighting. Again, Batman did not recognize the second time help came for him. This time, it unexpectedly came from the sky. The same tabloids that had once called him a demon were spreading rumors of an angel. When this angel began to be hailed as a hero by respectable newspapers and cheered on by the name of Superman, Bruce cautiously watched to see what the hero would do. He knew what he was seeing. One of the Kryptonians had survived. Watching Superman begin working for Lex Luthor, Batman wrote this Kryptonian off as a fool. Either that, or he was a red herring, meant to distract the public. For a moment, Bruce toyed with the possibility that the Lightkeepers were working with a faction of the Kryptonians. He reminded himself there could be others. It didn't take long to find them. Bruce knew he could always count on the tabloids to pick up these stories first. As Batman, he turned his focus beyond the city of Gotham in his crusade against the light and shadows, venturing across the country to investigate any phenomenon of potentially Kryptonian origin. A woman on the west coast was said to make a sound with her voice that could throw a vehicle. Word had it that she was a beautiful blonde in all black and fishnets beating up aggressive drunks. She was known to work with a man dressed as Robin Hood, bow and arrow and everything. It was unclear if he had powers, but Bruce could imagine the same could be said about himself. Not long after learning of this vigilante duo, two phenomenon in the southern states were making a reputation for themselves. Central City was rumored to be under the protection of a streak of light simply referred to as the Flash. A few blurry photos suggested this Flash was a person. In Freeland, a man was taking down drug-dealing gangs in poverty-stricken neighborhoods using electric bolts emitting from his hands. The police in Freeland were treating this man as a criminal at large. Bruce could relate. His interest was piqued by these phenomenal people, assuming this Flash was a person. Central City's streak of heroic light was a complete unknown. Yet the more he investigated the others, the less he suspected they were Kryptonians. They were something else altogether. From what he could tell, Bruce suspected that despite their abilities and heroics, like him, they were not invulnerable. He contacted Ray Palmer to see what could be done about making supersuits for these heroes. Ray was typically enthusiastic. I can't wait to hear how they want to theme their suits. I wonder if they already have hero monikers. Bruce raised a brow from under his cowl, looking at Ray with some amused curiosity. You have a hero moniker. Oh, sure. I call myself The Atom. Bruce got a good chuckle, and the two of them agreed to split up and make first contact with these vigilantes. Ray went to Freeland, while Bruce headed to Starling. After weeks of investigating, Bruce was impressed at how elusive the blonde woman in black and Archer in green proved to be. Ray, on the other hand, had made contact with the man in Freeland after a few days there. He called himself Black Lightning, and already had an impressive suit made for him. Ray kept going on about it while reporting back to Batman. Honestly, I don't think I can make any improvements on that thing if I tried. The suit uses his energy to create a repelling field. Seriously, I never imagined how varied these suits could be. Ray next went to Central City to find the Flash as Batman continued his pursuit in Starling. Inevitably, it was they who found him. The archer in all green made their presence known with an arrow a few inches from Batman's head. Attached to the arrow was a cable. I just want to be clear, I didn't miss that shot. The voice came from a distance. Bruce called back. I'd expect nothing less. The cable went taut and the archer and woman ziplined across. 
Flattery will get you nowhere, Batty. The woman crossed her arms and took a defiant stance. We're tired of watching you lurk around our city. The archer took the same stance at her side. So just tell us, what's got you coming to Starling? You two. I came to put you in contact with Professor Ray Palmer at Ivy University. Though they were suspicious of Batman, it didn't take much to convey the benefit of Ray's supersuits. When Bruce met back with Palmer, Ray was happy to tell him he had found the Flash and that he was a human after all. Bruce had to admit, I'm relieved to hear it. What makes you say that? He never told Ray about the Kryptonians and his original concern that these heroes might be more of them. He changed the subject, though deep down, he worried. He hoped these heroes would be enough should this Kryptonian be everything he heard they could be. Yet when he finally met Superman for the first time, Bruce found something he didn't expect. Though Batman spoke abrasively to the flying man who lit up the sky, never once did he fear for himself in the presence of this being of immeasurable power. As the Superman of Metropolis became celebrated around the world, embraced as a national hero, and unwittingly entangled in an ego contest with Lex Luthor, Bruce Wayne grew an unforeseen respect for him. This god from another time possessed a childlike sincerity. Bruce wanted to trust him, yet deep inside, he couldn't. If anything, his suspicions only deepened. Tabloid papers were again reporting incredible headlines. An alien was traveling the country, arresting criminals in a personal manhunt. The alien did not stay anywhere for long, though in his wake he left stories claiming he was the last remaining Martian. What disturbed Bruce most about these stories was the Martian's abilities. Like the Superman of Metropolis, he was incredibly strong and could fly. Further, it was said he could read minds. This prospect filled Bruce with dread and prompted him to contact Jason Blood for any resources he might have to protect him from telepathic assaults. While he trained his mind to handle these threats, Bruce investigated the Superman himself. When re-examining the earliest news articles about him, Bruce considered interviewing the journalists at the Daily Planet who seemed to run with a story. It was then that he first saw a picture of Clark Kent and noticed the resemblance. Rereading Kent's articles, Bruce felt nearly sure he had found the Superman hiding in plain sight. When Superman arrived at the Batcave for the first time, unannounced and undetected, Batman outwardly shone scorn. Yet secretly, he was impressed Superman had dared to enter. Bruce imagined it was probably, at the time, the bravest thing the Kryptonian had ever brought himself to do. Bruce made sure not to go easy on him. He wanted coming back to be just as hard. Yet after Superman left, an idea slowly began to take hold of Bruce. He began to see a new path. These heroes sprouting up across the country were the beginning of a new form of power, one that needed to be consolidated before the cabals already at play could gain control. Bruce planned to place Superman at the head of this new group. Clark's natural innocence would be their rallying point. Batman put his prejudice aside and finally approached the Martian Manhunter to enact his plan. Everything fell flawlessly into place. They had their league, led by Superman, while Batman managed from the shadows. Thinking he was in control, Bruce did not foresee how much Clark's open-hearted demeanor would challenge his own world. Dick Grayson had been his apprentice for years, wearing Bruce's former moniker as Robin, yet the ideals of the Justice League were slowly captivating him. Dick began questioning Bruce's methods. If you know so much, why don't you just tell Clark and the rest of the League? That doesn't really sound fair, does it? It's plenty fair. I tell them as much as they need to know. Need to know? How can you be sure you know how much they need to know? Who made you the boss of who knows what? Just tell them. I'll tell them when the time is right. No sooner. 
it's for their own good. Young Robin, in his late teens, standing as tall as Bruce, relaxed his posture, though he was no less wary. How much are you not telling me? I can only answer the questions you ask me, and I've always answered your questions truthfully. Have you? Or do you always answer them to your own convenience? You only volunteer bits and pieces and make everything seem like some kind of mystery to solve. It's no wonder you're mixed up with people like the Riddler and Joker. Don't be absurd. I do what I do to protect people. Maybe less secrets with the Justice League could protect more people. Bruce sighed. This was something his apprentice would not let go of. Fine. I... I'll try to see what I can do. Dick Grayson pursed his lips, raising a single brow and scrutinizing Bruce. Will you really, Bruce? Just trust them to figure themselves out and stop being so suspicious. Bruce said he would do as suggested, yet he could not stop himself. Compelled by his past, he could not let go of his distrust, even for Superman. By that point, he had already fashioned a ring of kryptonite. When the day finally came he felt compelled to use it, it effectively drove Clark from his life. This action led to a chain of events that resulted in the unexpected backlash of losing Robin. Exasperated by Batman's suspicious ways, Dick Grayson left Wayne Manor, denouncing his mentor as Bruce had renounced his master at the same age. Alone once again, Bruce found himself repeating his steps. He took on a new orphan, Jason Todd, and began training him. Yet he knew the boy was not ready for more. Dick had grown up as a trapeze artist. He had years more experience over Jason by the time he donned his mask and cape. Even knowing this, Bruce pushed Jason forward. Further still, he even let the young lady calling herself Batgirl join his inner ranks, having worked with her in the past. He had been reluctant to do so, especially considering she was Jim Gordon's daughter. Yet at this point, he didn't think it mattered. Though he had become unsure of his own path, he was compelled to go on with it. Who was he, if not a portrait of his own master? In the aftermath of Superman's battle with his own replica, Bruce watched in horror as his friend met his match. It was obvious where this thing had come from. He had warned Clark that giving Star Labs his fingernail clipping was a bad idea. The wreckage that monstrosity left by battling Superman would be enough to turn the election and win Lex Luthor the presidency. The morning of election day, Bruce had lost all concern for Luthor in his bid for power. Dick Grayson had gone missing, and no one in the Justice League knew where he was. His friend, Roy Harper, had been badly injured, and Dick made no appearance at the hospital. As he began his investigation from the Batcave, Bruce found his security again thwarted, but this time it was his former master, Ra's al Ghul. It was the first time they had seen each other in two decades. The demon's head was being escorted by his elite guard. Lady Shiva was no longer with him. Like Bruce, she too had eventually become disillusioned. Ra's al Ghul came asking for help. Your ward and my daughter have both been taken. This is a bold attempt to control you and I both. If we put our differences aside now, we may capitalize on an agile response. Your reputation as the world's greatest detective will be proven tonight. Bruce had nothing to prove. He recognized what game his former master was playing. This was another one of his tests. Bruce would go along with the pomp of investigating, yet undoubtedly, Dick and Talia were already in Ra's al Ghul's possession. If he wanted to get Dick back, he needed to play along. What game are you playing, demon? This is no game, Bruce. This is a plea from an old friend. 
Working all through the night, Bruce succeeded in revealing his master's plot. In doing this, he met the realization of why Ra's al Ghul had gone to the extent of enlisting Bruce for his fake mystery. The cave they found Dick and Talia in was adjacent to one of the Lazarus pits. Ra's al Ghul was once again dying. He brought Bruce there to ask him to reconsider and take his place. Luther will soon have won his presidency, which by itself is no real threat. But Vandal Savage is now poised to take on all of Luther's power. The army he has created in Kaznia and its allied forces are enough to bring this world to its end. Either you will take your rightful place, or I must again endure the Lazarus Pits." Bruce looked him coldly in the eye. He could feel Talia's pleading stare burning on his neck, yet forced himself to ignore her. I won't do it. You already chose your fate. I'm choosing mine. Very well. We will do this all again. Ras al Ghul went through with his ceremony, and Talia, as planned, brought him back from his madness. She had clearly done this multiple times by then. When Ras al Ghul recovered, she let her anger be known. How could you do this to me? I thought I had been kidnapped. Talia wanted no part of him. She and Dick both returned with Bruce to Wayne Manor. While they slept, exhausted by their experience, Bruce descended into the lowest levels of the Batcave and fired up his metal forge. When it reached a temperature of several thousand degrees, he threw his kryptonite ring inside of it. As the ring burned into oblivion, he reached out telepathically to Jean Jones. He was ready to find his path again. He needed Clark's light to guide him. Standing in the Batcave along with Batman and Jean Jones, Clark felt the weight of his body as he woke up from a kind of dream. Coming back to consciousness, it seemed like a lifetime ago when he and Jean first arrived. All three of them had their hands held together. Batman was dressed in wrinkled business attire. Clark looked into the eyes of his friend and wanted to know how to help. Bruce was still just as hard to read. Clark had witnessed a lifetime of Bruce's memories, and though Bruce himself had made more sense, Clark couldn't understand what this all meant to him. Is Richard all right? Batman pulled back his hand and furrowed his brow. Dick is fine. He's still sleeping. But that's not why I shared all that with you. I'm sorry, I... Was it the clown that broke out the prisoners? The Joker, right? Clark had heard of the Joker, but had thought of him as nothing more than another of Hugo Strange's patients dwelling in Gotham. If he was so bad, Clark wondered why Bruce had never mentioned his significance. It took only a moment of reflection before Clark realized that was why Bruce had to share all of his memories to explain it. Bruce's frown deepened, though it was clear he was doing his best to be patient. Yes, I... I'm glad you picked up on that. What do we do to stop him? There's nothing you can do to stop him. Nothing at all? I doubt that. I'm not even sure he's alive anymore. Then what are we even talking about? The Joker long ago perfected Hugo Strange's hypnotic technique. He's been using it to create duplicates of himself. At this point, there are several of them. You would never know if you found him or a decoy. They don't even know the difference. They all think they're the original Joker. Then what do we do? You don't do anything about the Joker. He's not even in your ballpark and scale of problems. Him and all the prisoners he freed, all of them the Justice League has ever captured, None of them are worse than what's to come. I've called you here and shown you all this because you need to understand the scale of what we face. Vandal Savage and Lex Luthor are going to war. 
and the demon's head is preparing to join them. Clark could hear it in Bruce's voice. There was no deception this time. This war he spoke of was nowhere to be seen, yet Bruce was convinced. It was coming, and nothing was safe or would ever be the same again. Thank you for listening. I'm Isaac Bluefoot. Son of L is written and produced by myself. If you're enjoying this audiobook, there is so much you can do to ensure it reaches its conclusion. Recommend it to friends, family, and even strangers. Rate the show and write a review on your podcatcher app if it has such a feature. I am ever grateful. The most significant way to show support for this production is by becoming a patron on patreon.com bluefoot. This story was inspired by the Superman and DC comics and characters originally created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster with additional contributions by Bill Finger, Bob Kane, Dennis O'Neill, Neil Adams, Julius Schwartz, Gardner Fox, Gil Kane, Frank Miller, Dave Mazzuccelli, Dick Sprang, Mike Zakowski, Jack Kirby, Sheldon Moldoff, Dave Wood, Jerry Robinson, Paul Dini, Bruce Tim, Tony Isabella, Trevor Von Eden, Mort Weisinger, George Papp, Dick Dillon, Joseph Samichson, Joe Serta, Jerry Conway, Don Newton, Rick Estrada, Alfred Bester, Martin Nodell, and Bob Brown. Manuscript editing assistance by Trisha Reel. Music in this episode was made by Chad Crouch, Blue Dot Sessions, Crowender, Kai Engel, David Hillowitz, Scott Holmes, BioUnit, Jari Pitkanen, Nihilor, Igor Kabarov, Sergei Quadrado, and audio was out. See the episode notes for details. For more of my work, get yourself a deck of OmenQuest cards at omenquestcards.com. Simple games with magical outcomes and no way to lose. And be sure to listen to the next episode, Chapter 24, The Changing of the Guard.